0: Hello everyone, welcome to Hugh at Home, I'm Tracy Koga. This week is Mental Illness Awareness Week and on Sunday it is World Mental Health Day. So what will we be talking about? Well, let's go to the huge chat room. My live guest is Sean Miller. He's the executive director for Peer Connections Manitoba. And we'll find out more about Meraki Theatre. And then joining us, Robin Priest, Charlotte Sitnick, and Kristen Dreibau, all sharing their own views on what mental health and wellness means today. I am really getting used to this now, of having... <laughs> A a real human being here, and we're safe distance, right, Sean? You know, six feet, whatever. It is so good to finally see you in person, Sean Miller, Executive Director for Peer Connections Manitoba. And Sean, this week has been dedicated to Mental Illness Week, but I want to talk about that whole, I guess, connotation of mental illness and what it really means to your organization, Peer Connections Manitoba.
1: Great uh, great to be here. Great <laughs> to see you in person. You know, we all have a lower half to our bodies, I'm discovering, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not I know. Just the, yeah, <laughs> not just the top half. Yeah, this week is definitely Mental Illness Awareness Week. And uh, what it means to our organization, I'm, uh, first of all, just talking about mental illness, it's, it's important, I think, what I've seen over the last little while is mental illness awareness has definitely increased Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things one of the challenges that I've that I've seen I've observed and the reason that I'm doing the work that I'm doing is that there while awareness has increased available supports hasn't quite gotten to the same level so there's a great disparity between supply and demand if if we can use a commodified uh, (laughs) word for that. So for our organization, what that means is that we've focused um, on mental health challenges. So diagnosis isn't ultra important for us, but we recognize that there's such a big need in our province to serve people. And we were formerly the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society Mm -hmm. serving 1% of the population. And so we've changed our name now to Peer Connections Manitoba because we want to throw our doors open so much wider. There's a, a number of factors that have impacted overall mental health of the population. Mm-hmm. And so to meet that demand, you know we've made some significant changes uh, in our focus, in our name and direction of the organization.
0: So let's talk about those quickly because I know that we have a very active chat room that's <laughs> waiting to get in. Um, sure. You know, just at the top of your head, Sean, what are you most proud of? And, and what do you find is most significant significant that people should know about your organization during this week of mental illness awareness?
1: Well, something uh, something that's really, really important is that we all have mental health and there are life factors that impact uh, our mental health. And so we have a team of clinically integrated, uh, community supports, trained, formalized peer support that focus, and this is the thing that I'm most proud of, um, and that is that they are Skilled in connecting with people through shared experience, so everybody on our team comes to the table with lived experience and are able to connect with other people just through that. Um, so that it's it's a very real conversation. You mm-hmm. know, we're not afraid to go and have those difficult conversations with people.
2: And
0: what do you see the most important to address? You know, whether it is maybe not in this week and looking forward to the week after the month after the year after a decade from now
1: the most important things for us to address um i would say that it really is about going back again to that theme of connection that you know we really try to normalize the experience that we don't necessarily need to have um we don't necessarily need to have the same diagnostic information in common Mm -hmm. but just rather what what is it for the individual in the moment that they need Mm -hmm. right we're not we're not case managers we don't set up like care plans it's just really about addressing what people need in the moment and we're here for both the people that are uh, experiencing mental health challenges uh, directly or indirectly so family members Um, there's very few supports available for family members Mm -hmm. that are going through health challenges
0: and that is so important. And now, like, we're still in this, this, I want to call it quasi-pandemic and, mm-hmm. you know, I guess, and this is really exasperated to the mental health and stress on people. What have you seen, um, I guess, how Peer Connections has been able to pivot and help this new section of people that are coming in with health issues mental health issues
1: well one of the biggest things that has really increased is people's um there's a lot more people in crisis now Mm -hmm. and so we take the support traditional model is Mm -hmm. to sit in a sit in an office or sit in a clinical setting and wait for people to come to you so we try to go to the places where people are and bring the support to where people are at. So we meet people where they are at. So pivoting in that way, um, being in the place where they're in crisis, and then able to walk them, having the ability to walk them from the crisis back into the community and then support them in the community as well. And that's really where the place, that's where we live, work, play. That's where recovery happens is in the mm-hmm. community, right? That's where we live our lives. So,
0: Well, you know what? This Conversation is going to continue, but it is such a fabulous segue to open up our chat room. We've got some amazing guests. You know, thank you, returning the superstar, Robin Priest, and her cohorts, Kirsten Drybo and uh, Charlotte Sitnik. Uh, It's so lovely to see you, Uh, but I'm actually going to put a pause on you three because I know, I know there's a lot to say. I'm going to give it to a new all star. Carly from Meraki Theater, who, as of um, all of this week, this organization has been providing free workshops in the arts and knowing how the arts means so much for mental health. So, Carly, take it away. Congratulations. Congratulations to you and Taylor. This is an amazing thing. Tell us more about Meraki Theater and I guess the whole impetus and idea of what you're doing this week.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having us. This is amazing. Um, Yeah, so basically Meraki uh, is a local independent theater company. Um, We started out doing uh, shows mostly during Pride Week in Manitoba to support the LGBTQ plus community. And um, we've sort of taken a big pivot during the pandemic um, towards more and more youth programming. Um, Our founder Taylor is a teacher first and foremost, and she found uh, really big love in drama teaching for uh, for her kids at school, so uh, we turned it into Meraki Theater Youth Programming, and. Uh, Through that, and actually through the unfortunate loss of one of Taylor's students due to some mental illness earlier this year, um, we were inspired to put on an event that brings together in partnership with Mood Disorders Manitoba, mental health resources, as well as free arts programming for kids ages 9 to 16. Oh, that's amazing.
0: Uh, Just briefly tell us about, I guess, some of the highlights of these workshops that you're going to be doing this week.
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, So we kicked it off yesterday with a musical theater workshop. And uh, some of the other things that uh, can be looked forward to this week for the kids is um, there's a beating workshop tomorrow, a songwriting workshop coming up. There's uh, some French theater that's going to be happening. And there's also a mindfulness day with uh, Keith McPherson. Uh, so they're gonna be learning all kinds of stuff and uh, all throughout the week, mood disorders is going to be there providing resources for parents and um, they're gonna be doing little mindfulness art drawing workshop kind of things uh, while the kids are waiting to go into their programming.
0: Oh it's so fabulous. Do you think that this night might be like something that Meraki will continue on though mm-hmm. throughout?
3: I think it will be, yeah. um, You know, we've already seen such an amazing turnout just in the one day and tonight that um, we are hoping really that this can become an annual week. And um, our youth programming absolutely isn't going anywhere either. We love uh, hosting youth camps throughout the year. Um, We did something earlier this year called Project Play where the kids got to work in a collaborative environment and actually write a play and perform it over Zoom together. Um, So that was lots of fun for them. And um, yeah, we're really passionate about providing that environment for kids to grow and uh, exercise their creative muscles
0: well i know last week because i know you have to go uh sunday is world mental health day and thinking about the youth and thinking about maybe what you and taylor want to build with meraki what would be the message that you would like to share with everyone
3: i think that um really what the team is trying to do is nurture compassion create change and empower youth um, we wanna provide them with resources as well as a safe space to be creative. Um, because in my opinion, it's never too early to know that you have resources and that you're not alone.
0: Oh, well, Carly, thank you so much for coming. And I know that I want to have Taylor be be sitting in the same seat that Sean is, uh, to really talk more about this theater. And I think there's a lot of collaborative minds here that I think um, more programming and inventive events will happen. So. Thank you so much, Carly, and good luck for the week.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thanks. All right. Okay.
0: So, just a little taste of what's happening during this week. Okay, Robin, what have, what have you been up to lately? <laughs>
4: <laughs> That's a little scary, isn't that a scary question? Um, actually, I've um. Uh, I've been having a bit of fun at the moment. I am uh, preparing a webinar that is being delivered in Australia but is also available here and it's on, it's about human rights and human rights as someone with mental health issues and talking about why we want to keep standing up and talking about like self-determination and and people getting supported to actually look at what's happening for them and work out how to get through it without necessarily just being here take this medication or take this and i want to be super clear i'm not anti or pro medication or treatment i'm completely pro informed choice and that's part of whole discussion about human rights that we as people with our own lived experience and mental health issues actually get to have a say in what happens with us so i'm super excited about that um i've been you know running more peer training like getting more peer supporters out there in the world and uh i was i was just listening to sean before about You know, there's more awareness, and there is, and I think we need to just keep talking about it. Normalise the feelings, normalise even those tough feelings, like normalise the conversation about suicide, normalise the conversation about I'm struggling with stuff so that people don't hide it, but we talk about it as a community and is also saying, you know, the resources haven't necessarily grown with the demand. I have a respectful challenge to the world. Oh, I'm cautious about this. I don't always think it's about more money. Sometimes I think it's about looking at services and are they actually working as well as they could, or are there some services that have just been around forever and we keep funding the same old, same old. I had a conversation uh, last week with uh, someone that works for Manitoba government about why don't we have peer support, people who have their own experience and also family peer support when people go on waiting lists. I will bet, I'll bet my business. Oh, Charlotte's (laughs) like, no. But I will bet my business, if we put like peer support into wait lists, actually, there won't be as many people ending up in services. I didn't really bet our business, Charlotte. I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to comment that,
0: on that, Sean?
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And uh, I may have used the word resources. Um, I use resources and services interchangeably, so... So yeah, the dollar signs were definitely not what was going through my mind, but I totally, totally agree. Um, the services and supports are something that we need to ramp up, and we need to match with the with the awareness because people and the coordination, right? The coordination of services. If we look to the Virgo report, um, so the the assessment on the healthcare system accessibility and coordination of services. So, you you know, using some of the dollars that we already have, the resources we already Mm -hmm. have, and just working on better coordinating the services that already exist, I think we'll be able to help so many more people. Um, Peer Connections Manitoba, like our clinical integration piece, we're working alongside as an adjunct to the clinical environment. And it's a beautiful relationship. You know, I'm with Robin when she says, I'm not anti or pro treatment or medication Um, but it's a wonderful thing when it's integrated like an integrative model and I won't get into my my personal story but I made a full recovery because of an integrative health practitioner that I went to see in the US. So you know fully fully agree Um, and that integrated approach is really what's what's super effective.
0: Yeah well, okay, um, Kirsten, then, I want you to chime in because you've had your own personal experience where you had to go out of province, right, for help and found help, right, in the U.S., just like Sean did. Yeah. Uh, why are, why are those, there are such discrepancies? Is it because they have a privatized health care system and we have Medicare, or is it just a train of thought?
5: Yeah, you know, my head goes to when Sean was saying how um, in, the, in the past several years, and, and, and not so several, there's a lot more awareness around what happens with an individual when they are faced with a mental health challenge or, or crisis. Um, and as society and as us as a whole, especially here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, are starting to recognize and, and have that conversation about the impact of what that has on an individual, I really believe the conversation uh, needs to be um, needs to start about let's talk about the impact that has on the family supporting that individual and we're a little behind on that i i think uh, than what's happening uh, outside of our province perhaps in other provinces and, and going into the states so um what society is not talking about and not quite yet recognizing unless you've absolutely walked in those shoes is uh yes an individual that is is facing a challenge regarding their mental health um, has has adversity and incredible challenges ahead of them and, and their life is turned upside down same goes for the family members that are supporting that individual and if we think the services are scarce and hard to come by for the individual they're almost nil for the family and that's the conversation that i'm super passionate about having um, because the family member is the one who's taking them to services and and um, and options out there, um, but also supporting them when they leave those services. Um, so in my case, like, yes, we absolutely left the province of Manitoba and the country to find a higher level of care, um, because it really didn't exist, especially for my adolescent uh, child at the time. I was really fortunate that um, Manitoba Health covered those services, but also the the treatment facility that we um, that we did a lot of research and we decided to uh, to um, admit our child to was all around that parallel process and all around family support and they gave us what we were lacking as far as um, uh, supports and services so the family could heal and the family could could move together on this recovery journey, really. Um, I'm kind of rambling a little bit right now, but um, you know, I, I really believe that the next five years, um, I'm I'm hoping, and I'm on a mission. I know Charlotte's with me, and I know Robins with me, to really start putting some some highlight to okay, let's let's keep talking about the individual, but let's start talking about the family.
0: Oh, well, that that is so true, um, and if you kind of look at it as a whole, I mean, there's so many. There is the one person, right? But then there's so many people around it and around them. Um, like, let's talk, too, about, I guess, getting the right information. What is the right information? And, h- and how do we access it? You know, we've talked about your organization. How do people know about it? Or, you know, like, uh, what, are, what are the first steps You identify that you are not well?
1: Yeah, it's you know. There's, I think, the direction that I would go in in terms of answering that question. There's an inherent shame and guilt that's associated when we're struggling mentally. Um, so there's, it's a it's a tricky thing whereby it's a combination of really being able to share your story and. And having an organization to be able to promote and make people aware that they exist and a willingness to reach out for help so it's again it's it's us trying the way that we're that we're approaching it is trying our best to meet people where they're at and being in the places where people are having those discussions um, so you know I don't have all the <laughs> the answers, but it's it's something that we wrestle with you know every day mm-hmm. it's like how do we how do we do a better job of making people aware that this exists and so <laughs> you know your social media you you, you do your your uh, web page and and all of those pieces, but how do we get into the community into people's lives how do we how do we get into those spaces to have those discussions with people? And then going back to a theme that we have talking about earlier, how do we normalize that experience to encourage people to, to have those uncomfortable conversations? You know, great discussion. I don't I have know. all the answers. I know, but, but I know. But a team of people that work to, like, try and make it happen.
0: Well, and, and I mean, these people here, I, I know, I know, well, Robin, let's hear you, but I think I'm going to first go to Charlotte, Okay. How, how do we, or is it like through word of mouth, it's through people that we know, it, it's, you know, like Winnipeg is five degrees of separation.
2: Um. Well, you know what, And I, but then you have that part that Sean was just talking about, that shame and blame mm-hmm. and guilt, and so they don't want to open up and ask, <clears throat> because some people are still going underground, they don't want to talk about their struggles, or the family doesn't want to talk about what's going on within the family. Um, and then often you don't hear about it until, you know, they're in that crisis stage, because they just were hoping that it might go away, and then it doesn't. And and that's where, you know, I can feel Sean's frustration, because often when families or an individual reaches out, they're in that place where I need you to, to see you today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sean's like, I can't, like, but I can see you in two weeks, or, you know, like, whatever that looks like. Um, and uh, so that's where normalizing the conversation around mental health. And when families can, I know in our case, with what Kirsten and I, um, when we work with families, a lot of schools, when a, a child starts to struggle, they, they'll introduce the family to us in hopes that they'll start to have conversations earlier on before it gets to that, you know, oh my, you know, it's like out of control or whatever that looks like, their anxiety is out of control and high. Um, I can't talk enough about uh, the support for the family and the silos that are created in our province around, um, like a lot of the organizations don't talk or share. I know Peer Connections Manitoba is really working to try to to get everybody to start talking to each other of what services are available. Because right now with the families we are talking with, most of them don't know what's out there and that's really, really hard to navigate. And the doctors and the clinicians don't know what's all out there, which is really unfortunate too. So it's a real. I, actually, while we were talking, I was just on three one one to see what's listed for mental health services, because that's where people start. They Google, they they look, they and then last resort often is is reaching out to friends and family who can help.
0: Well, we I think we just need to get the word out more, um, uh, because this is really crucial, right? to be proactive before it does escalate. So now talking about the world that we're in now, um, Sean and I previously were talking about addictions too, and, uh, the state that pandemic, post-pandemic isolation has increased our levels of mental health. Uh, Robin, I guess, uh, yeah. I mean, dealing with these heightened fears, these heightened anxieties, uh, tips
4: on how to diffuse it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I have to say, last year when all of this shook down, I said we should all find someone who's been living with anxiety for the last 20, 30 years and say to them, how do you do it? And uh, like a friend of mine went, I've been preparing for this moment my whole life. And she said, nothing's as bad as I ever imagined. I think for me, it's what can I control? And the reality is, I think I said this, uh, you know, on the the hue at one point, like we think we have control over all this stuff in our lives. And the only thing we have control over is us. Right? We we walk out the door. We don't have control over anyone else. We don't have control over what the rest of the world's doing. We don't have control over if we have a partner or if if there's kids. But we have this thought that we do. So, one, step back and go, I only have control over me in this moment. Um, I, I'm a, like, for me, one of the things that I do or I try to do, because I was waiting for Charlotte and Kirsten to laugh at me, It is try and take some breaks where I do, I get overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed the other day and I cried to my great friends here and then I went, okay, just breathe, take a step back, take a few moments off, the world's not going to fall apart and then start again. And I, I think... That's all we can do, right? Find the thing that soothes our soul in those moments. And that's different for everyone. For some people that might be journaling, not my thing, right? Someone else it might be yoga, again, I am not a pretzel. I'm not good at that. But I like to do some exercise. I like to walk the dog. I like to watch stupid TV. So if people can find what it is for them. I know Sean's a music man, right? He'll go off and and do his music and stuff. And, yeah, like, do I have the answers? No. Do I know that we are actually all in this together? And if we start talking, if we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, then someone else will be vulnerable and will work out actually many of us have these feelings and then we can share how each of us has got through it that's that's my belief that's why I stand up and go hello I'm the mentally crazy person yes I made a career out of it I've traveled the world <laughs> but I do it not for someone to say oh there's Robin Priest I do it because I want people to go, there's a safe space to have a vulnerable, brave conversation. And if we all stood up and do that, imagine, imagine how cool the world could be.
0: Wow. We always count on you, Robin, to say something so profound. Okay. So, hey, that's solved. That's, all, right, that's a, laugh, right? that's yeah, a yeah, wrap. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. No. <laughs> Okay, so I want to go around though. Um, lastly, Sunday is World Mental Health Day. Um, uh, we actually had a really good conversation just on the end, or September 30th, for the first time. It was Truth and Reconciliation Day. Not a holiday, n- not anything like that, but definitely a day to reflect. I also think this day, too is something to reflect on and how how we can help how we can uh, change how we can get uh, the word out and to talk more Um, i'll go with you sean because you're here yeah
1: absolutely so i think one of the most important aspects of world mental health day is to recognize the difference between mental illness and mental health Mental health is something that we all have. Mental health affects how we think, act, and feel. So it's actually it's pervasive throughout, uh, mm-hmm. throughout our entire lives. And I think what the important piece to, to remember is that the quality of our life really depends largely on the quality of our mental health, and that it's not something scary to talk about. There's mm-hmm. things that we can all do every single day to improve our mental health. So I think that when we when we talk about World Mental Health Day, it's it's having that recognition that this is something that we all have. um, And there are things that we can do and it's different for everybody, but we can improve it.
0: Oh, yes, most definitely. Kirsten.
5: Um, Well, you know, I encourage um, I encourage family members to have conversation with. With close trusted um, friends and support services, um, I know in my family story, I, I was very very quiet with what was happening within my my home and my family, and I did that in an attempt because I was I, I felt I was protecting my family, especially my child. Um, but to be honest, when I met Charlotte, um, she was kind of my first connection to that family peer support, where I actually met somebody who knew my world was. Walking a little further ahead of me and made it through, and not only that, she kind of looked like she had it together, and um, I I thought I was like the only one on this planet that was living what I was living. So that connection, that that peer connection, where somebody shared that experience, um, like in my family story, that was that was huge for me as a a family member that was really really struggling. Um, So I I encourage. I encourage people not to be afraid to respectfully uh, speak of what's going on and, and to let go of the shame and the blame and to find that trusted resource and and just just share what's going on with you. And um, they don't realize it at the time, uh, but for those family members, that support is really important. And, and they're going to feel like, uh, I felt like the world was lifted off my shoulders when I, I found Charlotte and I could start talking honestly about my reality and, uh, that, that's what I would like family members to do this uh, this week.
0: Oh thanks so much, Kirsten. Charlotte.
2: Well, you know we'll talk a little bit more about the family and we talk a lot about Kirsten and I with the families we work with, you know what the mental health looks like of the family and what the mental health looks like for each individual in the family. And often um, it looks a little different to each member of the family. So I encourage families to start having conversations just within their family. Hey, what does this mental health look like to you? And, uh, and be open to allow space for a non-judgmental conversation. Because I know um, when I first started having this conversation with, with my children, um, and listening to what the, they had to say because their interpretation was a little bit different uh, to mine and I think when you allow that um, safe space, non-judgmental space, um, within your family to have these kind of conversations, you're going to see some real growth in your entire family's mental health story.
0: Oh. And
4: Robin. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I have some respectful challenges. Uh, for this for this time one is let's all check out egos at the door and let's actually collaborate together work together to like develop an amazing system of supports for people so that's for all the providers government departments all of us who are saying we're supporting people um the The other respectful challenge is don't wait for a World Mental Health Day or an Awareness Week. Um, I put it on my uh, page on the 30th, like a day of truth and reconciliation. That sounds great, but why don't we walk the talk and be the truth and listen every day? And talk about it every day. And so my thing about this whole week and, and you know, Sunday is let's stop waiting for this week and this day and let's talk every day about mental health and how we support each other and how we support ourselves.
0: And boom. Drop the mic.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I, uh, yeah. I it, it all rings so true. And, uh, and I think that everyone out there, just start the conversation. Mm-hmm. Peer Connections Manitoba is here. Robin Priest, Live Your Truth. And All In Family Peer Support is here. Uh, there's so many places that you can go to. And I just want to thank you, Sean. Charlotte, Kirsten, Robin, um, the world is all a little bit of a better place with all of you here. Just know that because you know your success stories and you know. So that is why, you know, your work is going to continue. And Hugh just wants to be here to promote it and to share your successes and share. So thank you so much. And everybody, every day is World Mental Health Day.
1: Say what, say
6: what Girl, you know what's up Ooh, say what, well, say what, well, say what well. so Girl, you know what's up
0: Welcome back to Hew at Home. Coming up next, our second in a series of stories that are sharing Japanese Canadians' historical retrospectives. This time we feature Tarumi Kuwada and her parents' story of the internment. Your story I might say is going to be a little different because we first want to talk about your parents who went through the internment, uh, you were born after it and then also all of your humanitarian and philanthropic work that you have done for the Japanese Canadian community here specifically in Manitoba. Mm -hmm. So on that note, let's talk about your mom and dad, their history.
6: Well, you know, uh, my mom and dad uh, started off in uh, uh, BC. My dad had emigrated to uh, the West Coast from Japan uh, when he was 19 years old, and he had originally come uh, to help an uncle in the lower Fraser Valley who was farming. And then after that, he pursued his field of uh, study, which was carpentry and he ended up working in a sawmill in uh, the lower Fraser Valley. And then my parents got married. My <laughs> mother is, uh, is, was born in Eburn, BC, which is part of now uh, the Vancouver International Airport. And uh, she lived uh, her early adult years in Steveston, which is, again, mm. a very popular place for people to travel to. Uh, she worked in the canneries. And she met my dad, and they got married in November of 1936. And then four years uh, later, they uh, had my sister, Atsumi, who was born in 1940. And in 1942, um, they were uh, placed and forced into the internment camp.
0: And from there, I I mean, the Japanese are very stoic, and they don't like to show pain or emotion very often. But the internment was a very terrible, terrible time.
6: It was a, it was a time of injustice, of uh, violations of human rights. And ultimately, it was um, a time of racial discrimination, uh, racial unrest. Uh, there was a tremendous um, feeling in BC Uh, against Asians and other people of minority and so uh, the Japanese in BC had prospered in farming and in uh, fishing and uh, this was um, viewed as something that other BCers did not want to see and part of the uh, racial discrimination was against many people in the Japanese community who had prospered and had tried to make uh, a community of their own, uh, mainly in uh, the Powell Street area of Vancouver and Steveston. Um, Lots of uh, different activities happening in those areas. Uh, Because they did not have citizenship rights, uh, they were denied a lot of uh, health benefits, educational benefits, and they were also denied entry into some university uh, faculties, Um, and life was very uh, constricted in some ways for the Japanese Canadians who were facing a lot of uh, racial prejudice from other people in BC.
0: And so did they eventually move out east, I guess?
6: Well, there was a moratorium in BC. There was nobody allowed back into their homes on the, lower, on the uh, west coast of BC, within the 100-mile coast of, uh, of BC. So uh, the choice was, at the end of the interment, that uh, you could go back to Japan or you could go east of the Rockies. Now, many of the people in the interment were born in Canada, did not know Japan, uh, were certainly familiar with their ancestral roots but had never lived in Japan. And so the offer of uh, moving to Japan was uh, was quite a contradiction for a lot of people.
0: And then let's fast forward then to you being born in Winnipeg. What was life then as a child growing up here?
6: Well, you know, initially my parents were uh, offered a home outside of the city of Winnipeg. Winnipeg had a moratorium as well that they did not allow Japanese people to uh, live in Winnipeg following uh, the end of the war in 1945-46. And so my parents lived uh, in the uh, rural areas of Winnipeg uh, off of McPhillips uh, by um, in a home, in a homestead of a very lovely Ukrainian couple who uh, offered their home and offered uh help and assistance to settle into Winnipeg. In 1950, my father, uh, as a result of his carpentry uh, background, was able to uh, secure uh, some financial backing from a, a tremendously uh, respectful and generous uh, Winnipeg businessman, who helped my father get started in his own business of Kwata Construction. And my, at that time, my father built our family home in East Kodonan And we settled there. And my mother became the uh, sort of receptionist, bookkeeper, everybody looking after the family business. And uh, my father uh, became a very successful contractor, uh, building custom-made homes.
0: So what was the Japanese community like in those times? after the war, after the internment? I mean, your, your father sounds like he made such great success.
6: Well, you know, the Japanese community is, uh, is you know, remarkable in so many ways. Uh, following uh, a tremendous uh, four years in internment and on the sugar beet farms in Manitoba, um, they were very resilient and wish to move forward and to make a community and a life for their families and to make uh, the community a vibrant and joyous one to live in so my father and other uh, japanese canadian builders uh, built the manitoba buddhist church which became a focal uh, place for worship and for fellowship and community building There was also Knox United Church, which was the only um, church outside of the Buddhist church that welcomed uh, the Japanese uh, community into their congregation. And that changed, happily, it changed over time. Uh, My father and Tom Mitanni, uh, another really uh, strong community builder, founded the Manitoba Judo Club and my father served as president at at some point he also because of his uh, support and financial uh, donations um, many other things he judo was a lifetime interest of my father and uh, in the mid-60s i think it was that my father was granted an honorary black belt and other things you know in terms of social things my dad was quite the performer. He loved to, um, you know, perform in in different um, sort of like Samodai plays and things Mm -hmm. like that. So our place was often a place where people would congregate and 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 rehearse their plays and and then perform at the concert. We used to have concerts in the um, Polish Hall on Selkirk Avenue Mm -hmm. and people would sing and dance. I, used to, I was quite young then, and I used to be a tap dancer. And, uh, and I remember George Fukumura was a singer, and Jack uh, Okimura, was, uh, he was also a performer. And uh, so many, oh, and I have to mention Grace Koga, because she's <laughs> sort of related to you. Uh, she was a lovely singer, as well as Sue oika and so we came together in social ways, creating places for people to enjoy each other and, and, uh, and form and create a, a, a place that we all felt like we belonged and that we uh, had fellowship amongst each other. And the concerts were one place that so many people came to the Manitoba Japanese-Canadian Citizens' Association, which was the original um, uh, newsletter of the community. You know, that also was a place where people heard about other people in the community, who was getting married, who had a baby, uh, where there was some entertainment. uh, And it was also, you know, political news to sort of let people know uh, the Bird Commission was on at that time and uh, so people uh, uh, were very interested in what was happening in terms of compensation for their property and uh, there was a lot of things just beginning in the 1950s and uh, it was really a time of building and creating uh, a community that everybody could participate in and could enjoy each other you know Mm -hmm. so uh, it was a uh, it was a really Um, joyous and celebratory time.
0: That's you know so wonderful to hear and then moving forward let's talk about your personal interest in redress and what that meant to all Japanese Canadians in 1988.
6: Well you know most of the people that experienced the internment were either first or second generation Japanese Canadians and following uh, the uh, relocation across Canada for all the people who had been in internment, there was somewhat of a silence that happened. Uh, and it was um, a reluctance to share the story of the internment experience with their families. Uh, they they wanted to move on. And there's a Japanese uh, philosophy called gumbuddy. And, and that sort of means that you persevere under dire circumstances. You do the best you can, and you move on. And that basically is what a lot of people did. They felt that, you know, to relive the trauma and the experience uh, was was not productive for them or their families. And I think we've come a long way in terms of, uh, you know, when we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and, and we're more, as a society, more willing and open to talk about what kind of traumas people experience in war, and that we that they don't have to hide, they do not have to suffer alone. But in those days, you know, the Japanese Canadians were were very silent about their experience. And in 1977, in this centennial year, um, the Japanese Canadians of uh, the national organization felt. A need and felt a, a, a calling to do something about the wrongs that had and injustices that had been committed during the World War II. And so there was a commitment to move on to a campaign. And uh, in 1984, uh, Art Mickey was uh, um, positioned as the NAJC president and began a very active campaign uh, of the redress movement and in Manitoba uh, you know because Art lives here <laughs> and we all got to know a lot of things uh, firsthand what was mm-hmm. happening and uh, every province had a uh, redress committee uh, to to spread news and to gather people together to inform them about what was happening and all the different activities that were needed to, to uh, put together uh, uh, a national campaign. And so I became very interested in in being a part of that. Uh, my background is social work, and uh, I, I felt a tremendous uh, pull and, and desire to be a part of something that was going to make a difference, not only for Japanese Canadians. Canada as a, demo- a democratic society. Mm-hmm. We needed to right the wrongs that had been committed in the past, and, uh, and to to support uh, people who had been uh, experiencing all these uh, different ex- different traumas, and so um, I became quite interested in the the uh, redress movement, and uh, became a part of uh, the local Manitoba uh, campaign, and then I continued to be a part of the NAJC as the Manitoba representative for the Human Rights Committee because the Human Rights Committee was then established after the redress settlement in 1988. Our mission was to not only uh, educate and uh, become aware of our own community's needs in the area of, uh, of trauma, in the area of understanding uh, the, the violations and the, the wrongs that have been committed, but also to assist other organizations and communities that were, uh, you know, struggling also to, to do a campaign and to um, make their communities and the rest of us in Canada understand what had happened. And in uh, 2008, I became uh, one of the presidents of the uh, National Association of Japanese Canadians. I served on the board for six years and uh, I've I've always been involved with them on one way or another. Right now, I am the election chair of the NHAC.
0: When you're on an organization like this, Tarumi, you get a broader scope, right, Mm -hmm. across the country. Where do you see the Japanese Canadians today?
6: Well, you know, we are a very mixed group, you know, (laughs) uh, in terms of uh, of, uh, ethnicity. we probably, uh, and I don't know if I'm correct in this, but likely we are the one ethnic group that has the highest interracial marriage. Uh, and I think it's somewhere like 96% or something. <laughs> uh, I myself am married to uh, my husband, Ron, who is, uh, who is not Japanese. Uh, my two brother-in-laws, um, uh, my, I'm sorry, My one other brother-in-law and my sister-in-law are also not Japanese. I have one brother-in-law who is, (laughs) and we all loved him. Unfortunately, he's passed, but again, a a pillar of of the society and of the community.
0: Yes, so, so well said. And I guess maybe in closing, if your dad was here today, of course he would have told his story, but what do you think he would say? after all of this looking back at his life?
6: Towards the end of his life, he he had he said he had one regret. My father was a very business-oriented uh, person. He was also community-minded. He was busy all the time. He never took a break. So one of the things he said that he had a regret about was that he regretted that he didn't spend more time at the beach with his children. Oh. So I think if he were here today, I think one of the things he would say to, to, to people, not only now, but in the future, he would say, do the best you can be, do the best you can always be, and always remember your loved ones.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tarumi.
1: Thank you for having me. <laughs> is a climbing and fitness facility, so we're bouldering only, which means no ropes or harnesses. We use mats for protection, but the four pillars of our business are climbing, education, health and wellness, and community, and those aspects all kind of come together to create like a five-star climbing experience.
0: We want to give a very special thank you to all of our guests on today's show and leave you with this question. What will you be doing on Sunday, World Mental Health Day, to make your world or someone else's a bit brighter? We want to know, so send us an email to hello at ilikeyou.com or message us on Facebook or Instagram. But for now, stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time. On Hewitt, my heart when it broke your right into When the time heals all your wounds,
5: you will see that how was in. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of I Like You.com, podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company.